0: Hey guys, it's Annie. I know it has been a long time since we released new episodes, and for that I deeply apologize. We are going to get back into the swing of things, but I have one request. If you haven't already, please, please, please subscribe and share this podcast with others. If we as creators get more subscribers, it will help us to keep going and to produce more episodes for you. We love you diehard listeners so much, and it's for you that we want to continue. So, thanks for subscribing and sharing. Hello everyone, this is Annie, and you're listening to Heroes and Zeros, a true crime podcast. But don't you worry, because Gail will be joining us to do her true crime shorts. This episode will cover a very long list of crimes, both petty and horrific, committed by one of the worst serial killers in American history.
1: When you look at me, you know what hate is, because I don't know what love is. Two words I don't like to use is love and sorry, because I'm about hate.
0: Tommy Lynn Sells, a.k.a. the coast-to-coast killer or the cross-country killer. First, I want to give credit where credit is due. 99% of my information came from the wonderful author and the book from Diane Fanning, Through the Window, the Terrifying True Story of Cross-Country Killer Tommy Lynn Sells. Through countless interviews with victims and their families and hours and hours given up by law enforcement to give Diane as much information as they legally could and by interviews with Tommy Lynn Sells himself, this is the account of one of the worst serial killers in American history, his victims, and their families, and about a little girl that would bring him to justice. It's December 31st, 1999, 4.30 a.m., and serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells commits his last murder in Del Rio, Texas. After attempting to enter the Harris residence multiple times, he finally finds an open window. It's just outside the room of 14-year-old Justin Harris who is blind. Justin heard the noise, but assumed it was his sister and her friend who was spending the night and that they were just messing with him again. He told them to stop coming into his room, then went back to sleep. 10-year-old Crystal Searles, who was a friend of Katie Harris, was spending the night.
2: We stayed at the Harris family's house and they had a big family, the oldest son, Sean, and uh, Justin, Lori, and Katie. And they they lived kind of out in the desert. Like, there wasn't a lot of people close to them.
0: It was off in the middle of nowhere. 13-year-old Katie was on the bottom of the bunk beds. Tommy crept up to Katie and hisses into her ear, wake up. He laid down next to her and held one hand to her trembling throat, while his other hand wielded a hideous 12-inch boning knife. Though it was dark when Katie opened her eyes, She immediately recognized the man and asked him what he was doing there. Ignoring her question with words, Sells laid down in the bed beside her and used his knife to start removing her clothing. When he started putting his hands on her body, she struggled and fell out of the bed. Then Katie started screaming, go get mama. Katie's friend, Crystal, woke up to see a man with a large knife at the throat of her best friend. Crystal and Katie's eyes met and suddenly, the man made two movements across Katie's neck. Katie's body twisted as she grabbed the posters that were hanging on the wall behind her and she fell to the ground. The man started jabbing the knife over and over into her arms, abdomen, chest. And just as he was about to leave,
2: he still didn't notice I was in the room and he was getting ready to leave. He opened the door, almost had the light off looked one last time and and he saw me looking at him.
0: He then turned towards Crystal as she sat motionless in the bed. She promised him that she would be quiet. She wouldn't say anything. Crystal begged him not to hurt her.
2: I was trying to scoot to the right side of the bed cause he was on the left. He just reached over and cut my throat like this. And then I just remember laying there and the light turning off and I heard the door shut.
0: Crystal laid on the floor as long as she could Pretending to be dead until she just couldn't take it any longer. She crawled around the dark room, feeling her way until she found her friend. Katie was not moving, but still, without thinking, she lay down next to Katie's body and patted her on the leg, hoping to make her friend feel better. But Katie had been stabbed 16 times and had severe lacerations and wasn't able to appreciate her friend's empathy.
2: I was laying there thinking, has he been to the other rooms? Does he know that the whole family's here? You know, is everybody hurt? Are they all dead?
0: Crystal laid there for a moment and thought she heard a car start in the distance. And that is when she ran to get help from a neighbor, thinking that everyone in the house must have been killed. This neighbor lived a quarter mile up the road. Remember now, Crystal is bleeding from her neck wound. Terrified that he would turn back and get her, she continues on the road.
2: Really, all I could think about was just get to this house, just get to this house, just get to this house. And I just banged on their door, and I I hear a gentleman. He's like, "Who's there? Who's there?" You know, I can't and I can't talk. So I'm just banging as hard as I can on the door, and then he opens the door.
1: I have a little girl just rang my doorbell.
0: In another second, he would see the blood. Herb opened the door and Katie pointed to her neck. I'm going to pause. There's going to be a graphic description. So if you want to skip forward 15 seconds, go ahead. From both sides of a deep gash were the ends of her windpipe protruding from her neck. A three inch wide thick clot of blood was hanging from her gash down to the middle of her chest. Her clothes were saturated with blood and she swayed, lightheaded back and forth, while standing on the porch. Herb let her in immediately and told Marlene his wife to take care of her, so he left and called 911. When someone answered finally on the other end of the phone, Herb immediately thought of his grandchildren and did not want to say in front of the child that is right near him that he had a girl in his living room and that she was dying. So instead he said, I need an ambulance because I have a little girl that is hurt and covered in blood and we need police. So please hurry. Marlene and Herb tried to stop the bleeding by wrapping a towel around her neck, but Katie's calm demeanor was broken for the first time as she panicked and waved it away. She knew that she would not be able to breathe because it would cover her windpipe. Now get this, at one point, Crystal went into the kitchen and laid down on the vinyl flooring because, as she was still bleeding, she was worried about getting blood onto the neighbor's carpet. I think this is a pretty remarkable human being. With a ink pen and a pad of paper, this little survivor was able to answer questions, but not with her voice, because he had sliced her windpipe. Herb and Marlene asked where she was from, etc. She said on the notepad that she was from Kansas and that the Harris's next door were hurt. When asked who did this to her, she scrolls on the paper, this guy. Marlene saw the flashing lights drive right by their home. She called them back and told them to turn around and then went on onto the porch with a flashlight and waved the beam back and forth. Crystal asked Herb by writing down the question, will I live? Herb kissed her forehead and told her that everything was just going to be fine. Then he had to turn away to hide the tears because he believed he was watching the young girl die on his kitchen floor. Crystal's body started convulsing. Paramedics saw the wound and realized it was much more traumatic than what they had anticipated. She was bleeding heavily and convulsing. Paramedics tried to put a trach down her throat, but she couldn't breathe. So they loaded her up into the ambulance and stabilized her as best they could. Police then went to the Harris residence and pushed open the screen door, yelling sheriff's office as they entered. Within seconds, Mrs. Harris and one of her daughters, Lori, appeared sort of sheepishly down the hall and asked what was going on. The police asked if everyone was okay and if there was anyone on the east end of the residence. Mrs. Harris told the officers that her other daughter, Katie, slept there as tears started streaming down her face because she knew something was wrong. Two of the officers walked down the hall while Officer Noel stayed with Mrs. Harris to try to keep her calm. The officers opened the door to Katie's room and, and saw her bleeding, lifeless body sprawled onto the floor. Blood was splattered on all four walls, her bedding, and on the frames to both top and bottom bunks of the beds. Katie was naked from the waist down. Her shorts and panties were on the floor by the door. The officers checked for signs of life and found none. Then the officers opened the door to Justin's bedroom, finding him alive and well, completely unharmed, sleeping, completely unaware of what was going on.
2: I woke up to the sun coming through the window, and I sat up and I saw a lady singing in my room that I didn't know. And she just handed me a pair of shorts and a purple tank top and said, put this on, we gotta go. Directly, maybe five steps away from my door, was just a stream of blood. It looked like somebody was stumbling, was holding on to things, there was blood on the wall, and just, it was everywhere. And then
0: there was more outside. The suspect that came to the minds of the police initially was, of course, the father. Police learned from his wife that Terry Harris, Katie's father, was out of town helping a friend move. Terry Harris was actually Katie's stepfather. Now here are the results of Katie Harris's autopsy, taken from the book from Diane Fanning. It says, her carotid artery had been severed, as had her jugular vein. The wound to her neck went all the way down to her vertebrae. In addition to having her throat cut, she had suffered 16 stab wounds, Three of them going all the way through her body and exiting on the other side.
1: On December 31st, 1999, I had a phone call at close to 6 o'clock in the morning as I was preparing to move from Kansas to Texas. It was a Valverde emergency room asking me for my permission to lifelike Crystal she had been attacked. And I said, absolutely, Life where? And they said, San Antonio. I didn't know anything other than Crystal had had her throat cut. If I looked her in her eyes, I would know if she was gonna make
0: it. At the University Hospital, 10-year-old Crystal underwent surgery. The surgeons were able to save her life, but would not know for days if she would ever be able to talk again. Doctors were concerned about the swelling and the several arteries that were cut that were bleeding into the lungs. But after surgery, as soon as Crystal regained consciousness, her fight for justice was immediate. She started flailing her arms around trying to communicate that she wanted to tell them what had happened to her and her friend. They gave her a pad of paper and a pen, and she told the doctors that she wanted the police there right away so she could talk to them.
1: Katie Harris was a very popular 13-year-old, beautiful young girl who had everything in the world going for her. A young girl who fought very bravely for her life. And we knew a 10-year-old girl had survived Crystal Searles. Uh, At that point in time, we didn't know to the extent of her injuries, Uh, and that was our only hope as far as any surviving witnessed.
0: That was Texas Ranger, Johnny Allen. Investigators immediately met Crystal in the ICU.
1: When we initially walked into the room, we told Crystal who we were. And uh, at that point in time, I assured Crystal that we are going to arrest the person or persons who did this to her. And at that point in time, I was hoping I could back that up. I felt like it was her story. And when she was ready and comfortable, she would tell me what she wanted to tell me about it.
0: They started easing her into the interview by asking her questions, but she would have none of that, shaking her head. She was frantically writing with her right hand, then would shift the pen to her left hand because her right hand was getting achy. The officers noticed that she was writing just as easily with her left as she was with her right. She wrote that she saw her attacker and remembered what he looked like, giving them a description. The officers looked at one another, astonished. Crystal's parents had driven 13 hours from Kansas City the day before to bring in the new year with the Harris family. So they rushed to the hospital to be at their daughter's bedside.
1: When I got in her room, I saw this little girl with all of these tubes and the, one
0: of the machines was breathing for her. Pam Searles, Crystal's mother.
1: She looked like this baby in this humongous bed. And I looked her in her eyes and I said, are you okay, Angel, mommy's here. I knew that a guy had slit her windpipe completely and nicked her vocal cords. And then she kept asking me, is Katie okay, is Katie okay? And I couldn't tell her, I couldn't tell her anything. It hurt and all, but I think just that
2: Katie, she helped me through everything. Her soul came up and, like, stayed with me. As soon as I woke up from surgery, I was ready to talk.
0: The voice of Crystal Searles, the brave survivor.
2: And my mom was like, you know, Crystal, we have to wait till the police get there, the detectives, and things like that.
0: When they arrived, a forensic artist was sitting with her. Police spoke with Crystal's father, Doug Luker, asking him if he had any idea who would want to do this to his daughter. So they gave him the written description that Crystal had given them of the attacker. He said it looked familiar and reminded him of someone that he and Mr. Harris ran into the day before at a convenience store. Pam, Crystal's mother, sat at her daughter's bedside. Crystal would work with the artist drift off to sleep from exhaustion, and then wake up from a short nap and resume her work with the artist, adding details to the drawing. As Crystal and the artist worked, an image emerged. The man had long hair and a beard. Crystal's father thought that the man looked familiar. After seeing the sketch, he thought it definitely looked like the man that he saw at the Pico convenience store, and that his name was Tom or Tommy, and that he worked at Amigo Auto Sales at the Uvalde DPS office, which stands for Department of Public Safety. Ranger Allen called Amigo Auto Sales and talked to the owner of the business, which was Bill Hughes. Apparently, Hughes would not give the ranger a name, but then he turned around and called the sheriff's office in Valverde County and told the sheriff that the man that they were looking for was Tommy Lynn Sells. In the meantime, Terry Harris, Katie's father, drove around Del Rio, Texas with a rifle at his side he told anyone that would listen that he vowed to kill the man responsible for murdering his adopted daughter, Katie. Once Sheriff Jernigan told the Texas Rangers the name of the suspect, the Rangers gathered up driver's license photos to do photo lineup for Crystal at the hospital. The Rangers took their six-pack of driver's licenses to the hospital, laid them out in front of Crystal, and the only photo that they had of Tommy was one of him with no beard. So the rest of the driver's licenses that they gathered... All had beardless men, so they were laying out in front of Crystal, and she looked momentarily, kind of furrowing her brow as she tried to look more intently at the faces, then without question pointed her finger at the photo of Tommy Lynn's cells. They asked her again and again to be sure that she picked the right guy, and each time she slammed her finger down harder onto the picture. This, my friends, was considered a positive ID. This is the year 2000 now. It was just days later when Sells was arrested on January 2nd, 2000, at the trailer where he lived with his wife and her four children. He didn't resist or even ask why he was being arrested. In the search, they found a pair of jeans that had blood and DNA that, when extracted, were from Katie Harris and Crystal Searles. Sells later confessed to killing Katie and attacking Crystal, but that was only the tip of the iceberg, Tommy says he knew Terry Harris, Katie's adoptive father, and that Katie was his intended victim that night. During the following months, the extent of Tommy Lynn Sells' crimes would shock investigators. This murder of Katie Harris was not a one-off. Sells admitted to killing multiple men, women, and children in several states across the country. While Tommy is sitting in prison, He talks to a crime writer, Diane Fanning, and began corresponding with her as he awaited execution in Texas. He does get caught, he does get charged, but now we get to hear some of the horrible things he did. In one of his letters to Fanning, Sells confessed to the murder of 10-year-old Joel Kirkpatrick. Joel's mother, Julie Ray Harper, was accused, put on trial, and had been found guilty of his murder and was serving time in prison. Sells told Fanning in an interview later that Harper had been rude to him at a convenience store, so to get back at her, he followed her home and murdered her child. Wow. The confession, along with Fanning's testimony at a prison review board and the help from the Innocence Project, resulted in a new trial for Harper that ended in acquittal. Yay! So there's another hero, first the survivor, and now the author of the book that was my resource. All right, so let's go back to the beginning. Tommy Lynn Sells was a serial killer who claimed responsibility for over 70 murders across the U.S., earning him the nickname the Coast-to-Coast Killer. He was also nicknamed the Cross-Country Killer and was considered to be a pedophiliac, a hebophiliac, a necrophiliac serial killer, serial rapist, family annihilator, abductor, and a robber. Let's get to his background. 1964, he was born on June 28th in Oakland, California, to a single parent, Nina Lovins, and he also had a twin sister named Tammy Jean. So Tammy Jean and Tommy Lynn. Nina was living with a man who was not the father, and his name was William Sells. The biological father was Joe Lovins, and he was never really a part of Tommy's life, so the kids took on the last name of Sells. He and Tammy would have three younger siblings. Soon after the family moved to St. Louis, Missouri, from California, one of the twins, Tammy Jean, developed an excessively high fever. So at 6 a.m. in the morning, Anina rushes her 18-month-old baby daughter to the hospital. The doctor said that she had pneumonia and placed the baby immediately in a tent. As Nina sat beside her, beads of sweat were rolling off her child's head. By 6 p.m. the same day, Tammy Jean had died. Insistent that her baby did not die of pneumonia, she insisted on an autopsy. They discovered that Tammy Jean had spinal meningitis. Tommy would later commemorate his twin's death by getting a tattoo on his left upper arm with a tombstone and her name in it. While the family attended Tammy Jean's funeral, Nina's Aunt Bonnie Walpole took care of little Tommy. Bonnie then made an urgent call to Nina telling her that now Tommy was suffering from a very high fever. The two women met at the hospital and the same doctor that treated Tammy Jean greeted them and gave Tommy the same diagnosis, pneumonia. Apparently, upset, Nina was not having the same doctor kill another one of her babies and she told him as much. Then her and her aunt rushed to another hospital. Now, I think This part is significant. It was incredibly cold outside and blustering wind and Nina had wrapped a blanket around him but she couldn't keep the blanket around the 18 month old because it was so windy and he was cold and crying. The next hospital was 90 miles away. So they get him in the car and by the time that they were halfway there, Tommy just sat up suddenly, chattering and acting as if nothing had happened by the time they got to the hospital, his fever had broken. And it is not lost on me that the mention of those two scenes in Fanning's book, Tammy Jean's misdiagnosis, therefore placed in a hospital tent where she was hot and sweating with the stark contrast of a feverish child out in the cold, blustering wind, whose fever eventually breaks within a short period of time. I don't think this is any coincidence. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, (laughs) I'm not in the healthcare field. So I'm sure someone's out there going, no, duh. (laughs) So anyway, just pointing that out. Tommy stayed in the hospital for five days recuperating, acting like a typical energetic toddler. His fever never recurred. So after Tommy's recovery, Nina decided to rent a home that was owned by her Aunt Bonnie. So Nina took the sniffling Tommy Lynn with her to check out the new home. And while she was there, Bonnie offered to keep the child while Nina and the rest of her family got settled in their new home. Apparently, it took two and a half years for Nina to come back and get her child because they were now settled in their new place. Okay, I cannot imagine either one of my sons or anybody I know going to drop their child off to me to watch so that they can get moved. Because I know it takes trips back and forth and setting up the kitchen and the beds and you have other kids and they have to eat too and all those things take time but for two and a half years she didn't call she didn't check in to see how he was she didn't come over it was as if he didn't exist to her here's a word from our sponsor to the show. He later would claim that living with his aunt Bonnie was the one bright spot in his life. Bonnie recalls that Tommy's favorite pastime was riding his tricycle up and down the sidewalk and that he wanted to be a fireman when he grew up. Same. (laughs) Bonnie had two daughters, 12-year-old Sandy and 8-year-old Kathy. Tommy would meet the girls every day as they walked home from school and the three would laugh and play easily all the way from dinner to bedtime. They absolutely adored him and spoiled the child as if he was their own baby brother. Bonnie thought that they made such a happy family that she decided that she wanted to maybe make it a permanent thing. So in 1969, when Tommy was five years old, Bonnie approached the subject of adoption with Nina, and Nina flipped out. She was furious. She showed up, took the child away from the only home he had ever known. Afterwards, Bonnie had repeatedly tried to visit little Tommy, but Nina refused all of her efforts. She wouldn't even let Bonnie see the child for a moment to get a hug. After all was said and done, Bonnie felt incredible guilt for not having hired a lawyer to fight for custody. Because after all, in the two and a half years that Tommy was living with Bonnie and her girls, not once, like I said earlier, Did Did Nina visit her son or call to see how he was doing? I can only imagine that if Aunt Bonnie had pushed it and adopted Tommy, would it have changed the outcome? Would lives have been saved? Unlike the movie Sliding Doors, which I wholeheartedly recommend, it stars Gwyneth Paltrow with the best haircut. (laughs) But this is real life, and we unfortunately don't get to see what happens when we take path number one instead of path number two. Now it's 1971 and seven-year-old Tommy started drinking. I know I'm wondering why in the hell would a seven-year-old child start drinking? One possibility is that it is thought that Tommy had or could have had a brain injury due to the swelling caused by the spinal meningitis and that he suffered from that severely would be considered a head trauma, and he was only 18 months old. So as we all know too well, a severe brain injury can cause a person to be extremely angry, impulsive, and be known for making a lifetime of bad decisions. I also learned in my research that he was angry. In fact, so angry because his mom took him from his loving aunt, which was a warm and stable life, his bright spot, as he said, into one that wasn't. In 1972, he was eight years old. Sells began hanging around with a guy from a nearby town, Frisbee. It was a really small town with a population of only 88 people. This man's name was Willis Clark. Clark systematically started grooming and seducing the young boy. The man showed him a lot of attention in the form of gifts and frequent outings, for example, to shoot pool in a nearby town called Kennett. On several occasions, Sells would spend the night at the man's home. Nina would let him spend a couple of days at a time even with Clark. But when she would pick him up to take him home, he would throw such a huge fit because he didn't want to leave that she eventually just let him stay there as long as he wanted. Tommy Lynn would eventually move in with Willis Clark. He would give him money for doing odd jobs, a little bit of anything, and he would have a pocketful of spending money and that was something so important that a young boy could revel in. But these gifts came at a price. Later, according to Bonnie and Nina and Tommy and a psychiatrist, they would state that the man was a pedophile who sexually abused Tommy and others for years. Clark was never married and always had a bounty of young boys clamoring for his attention. Later, Clark would be found guilty of child molestation which came as no surprise because he had been one of his victims since he was eight years old. The first time Clark had forced Tommy to have sex with him, the young boy just laid in a fetal position, scared and alone, wanting someone to talk to. Anyone. But apparently there was no one. No one that he felt comfortable, at least, to talk to. Now, I have to mention this because I've read this from multiple sources that state his mother actually gave consent for Clark to molest cells right. I have my doubts I could believe that she let her son just stay with a stranger barely caring about what happened to him but that she would actually give verbal permission to a man to have sex with her 8 year old son you would have to prove that to me before I would believe it I think it's just a rumor that got started probably started by Tommy Lynn cells himself unless she was paid I doubt the story is true I guess, well, after all, Charles Manson's mom once tried to sell him for a pitcher of beer to a woman that was wanting to adopt a child. But anyway, that was Manson. (laughs) And we don't, this is just alleged that she gave Clark permission. Either way, it's no surprise that the relationship that he had with Clark had, quote unquote, affected him badly. In 1974, at the age of 10, Sells was experimenting with marijuana and he stopped attending school and drank alcohol on a regular basis. In 1975, at the age of 11, his presumed biological father, Joe Lovins, dies. Losing the opportunity for Tommy to have one last heart-to-heart conversation with his father brought forth just a rush of emotions. To add more agony for the child to deal with, at his father's funeral, with tears in his eyes, 11-year-old Tommy was talking to his father so laid in the coffin next to him from the book Through the Window by Diane Fanning he is quoted at saying quote, there's a whole lot in my life that's really messed up dad I'm ready to talk to you now I wish you didn't have to leave me so soon I'm really going to miss you unquote suddenly <laughs> a hard slap on the rump stopped his heartfelt words to his father Ma Brown his maternal grandmother said stop it stop it right now and go sit down Mm, Very loving. Seems to me that Nina's uncaring attitude and her crappy behavior towards Tommy are most likely genetic and learned. Two years later, in 1977, when he was only 13, Tommy climbs naked into his grandmother's bed. No idea why. Ma Brown was sleeping soundly when she felt a movement on her bed. She opens her eyes and sees her naked grandson slipping under the covers. Ma Brown sharply snaps at him, saying, you'd better get your ass out of this bed and stop this shit. So Tommy did as he was told and never tried to climb into his grandmother's bed ever again. Tommy was then kicked out and banned from the family home and spent most of his time now with Willis Clark, the pedophile. Later, the same year, in 1977, Tommy decides to walk from Clark's house where he was staying to his family's trailer to visit his mother and his brother but when he got there and he tried to open the door it was locked so he knocked there was no answer he pulls himself up to the window ledge and looked inside nothing the place was empty it so happens that the whole family had moved only days after the climbing naked into granny's bed incident Nina had met a man from Michigan got married and not a word was said to the 13 year old boy no goodbyes no see you laters and no forwarding address. None of the Sells family would even corroborate this story. So since they didn't corroborate the story, I was wondering, where was everybody? Why did they leave their 13-year-old son behind without saying a word, and where did they go? I think at this point we can decide, and I think pretty justifiably, probably very accurately, that there is just a long line of crappy Shitty people in this family. So if all of you potential or active parents out there would like a handbook on how to create a serial killer with your child, this is how you do it. <laughs> now, I'm, not, I'm not giving them excuses, not by any means. But we can't overlook the circumstances either that innocent children are put in by shitty adults. He should have received counseling. He didn't. He should have had someone to talk to, but he didn't. He should have had a mother that looked out for him, but he didn't. It's a basic prerequisite for being a parent. Be there for your child. Because your child might grow up to be a shitty adult, just like his parent. And maybe his anger from a shitty childhood will make him a worse human being than a shitty parent ever thought possible. I know this sounds like I'm making excuses for Tommy Lincel's behavior and his crimes, but I am not. I'm not. It's disgusting. It's horrific. But I'm trying to understand it, or at least make sense of it. And like many serial killers, the psyche and the circumstances of this human being that may have led him to these crimes is what I find interesting, fascinating even. What it must take to hurt another human being and obtain joy from that comes from a place that I cannot fathom, that I don't have, thankfully, that many people don't have, thankfully. So only a few days later, in 1977, when a young girl stirred the rage she was feeling from his recent abandonment he pistol whipped her until she was unconscious from 1978 to 1999 starting out at the age of 14 Sells had no family was homeless and on the road living the life of a permanent drifter he would travel the united states by hitchhiking and by train he worked odd jobs doing short-term manual labor and also as a barber but he also spent much of his time in jail for various petty crimes, multiple various crimes, so many petty crimes. Tommy had vivid memories of this time in his life. He remembered the places he visited and the sites he saw, sites such as the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, and the Bright Lights, and the Strip of Las Vegas. But ironically, the memory of his first murder is vague. He's not sure which one it was or even what state it was in. But he said in an interview that one of his first murders was one of self-defense. But here's the real story. On July 5, 1979, five-year-old Richard Cade was at a t-ball game, or had a t-ball game, just outside Port Gibson, Mississippi. His parents were John and Kathleen Cade and his 10-year-old brother, John Jr. They were all in attendance and were going to go to his game. So after, just after midnight, after falling asleep in her easy chair watching TV... Kathleen wakes up, kind of walks down the carpeted hallway, and tucks herself into bed. Her husband John and son, John Jr., were there, having already fallen asleep themselves while watching TV. She scoots her 10-year-old son over and climbs in beside him in bed, putting him between her and her husband. Little does the Cade family know, though, that walking the streets just after midnight is an acne-scarred 15-year-old homeless kid, with a huge chip on his shoulder. And he's in desperate need of a beer. This kid, Tommy Lynn Sells, notices a cozy-looking little house, finds a stool from the patio, and places it under an open window. He takes notice of the comfortable living room, opens the fridge, is digging around for a beer, but there was nothing in there but juice and milk. Tommy removes the carton of milk, takes a couple of swigs out of the carton, and just leaves a carton on the counter. Curious, and not wanting to leave the cozy little home just yet, Tommy wanders around the house and makes it to a bedroom in the back. There he sees a middle-aged couple asleep in bed. His intentions when he entered the home, apparently, were just mischief and petty criminal acts. But, according to Sells, there was something about John's face, and the memories of his molestation came flooding back to him. He was suddenly filled with rage, and his anger overwhelmed him he whips out the thirty-eight special that he had in his pocket and shot the man once, then fled the home. Kathleen, she was in a, a deep sleep, hears something, hears some rustling and scuffling sounds, but she just can't pull herself out of her slumber. Then she hears something like the crackling of popcorn coming from the kitchen or maybe a distant crack of thunder. But still, she cannot fully awaken. But when she hears her husband yell, what's going on here? She pulls herself awake. The first sight she sees is her alarm clock on the nightstand, which read 3:01. one She turns towards her husband, and after turning on the light, he says that he is bleeding and looks down at his hands. John goes into the bathroom with his terrified wife and son right behind him. As he bends over the sink to rinse off his bloody hands, he falls backwards onto the floor, dead. When the police show up, there's the carton of milk still on the counter, still cold. Police were undoubtedly baffled. There were no fingerprints and nothing was missing from the home. This crime just did not make any sense. The first suspect of course was Kathleen the wife but after passing a polygraph test she was cleared. According to Sells in 1980 though this crime has not been confirmed but we will mention it. This is the next crime. He claims he committed his first murder at the age of 16 after breaking into a home and killing a man inside ...who is performing oral sex on a young boy. Okay, so there was never any proof to back up this claim. So, through my research and the reading of this material by Diane Fanning, this is just my opinion. But I believe, without really having any proof of this crime, that maybe Sells was trying to justify in his mind... ...and maybe to others later and get some mixed up, the killing of John Cade by fabricating the story of a young boy being abused... Perhaps the face of John Cade and the memory of his abuse by Willis Clark got all jumbled up in his head and he impulsively pulled the trigger when John sat up in bed. Again, you know, that's only my theory. There's no way of knowing really, knowing why 15-year-old Sells would murder John Cade who was asleep in his own bed, in his own home. But what is known is that in 1980 in Los Angeles, near a Chinese restaurant, Tommy Lynn Sells kills another man with an ice pick soon after in oakland he is once again in possession of an ice pick and finds himself in a gang related fight in which he gets wounded himself cells doesn't stick around though to be sure that the other man is dead instead he takes himself to a hospital cells was seriously injured because the ice pick stab that he took in the back missed his spine by a pencil lead while in the hospital doctors and nurses try to put a catheter in But Sells refuses and becomes outraged at their persistence. And it was explained to him, Okay, buddy, calm down because you have bleeding in your kidneys. And still, Sells refused. According to him, he wasn't going to let the indignity of having a catheter inserted, even if it was to save his life. He left the hospital against medical advice and hitchhiked to St. Louis, where his mother lived so he still wants to have a relationship with his mom. Nina had divorced the husband that she left Tommy for, abandoned him for, and moved from Michigan back to St. Louis. It took Tommy 49 hours to reach her home, and she ends up nursing him back to health. In the early 80s, Tommy had such a long list of conquests, you know, because he's developing, he's in puberty, and his mother, Nina, Jokingly calls him her little whore. Wow. I can't imagine calling one of my sons a little whore and laughing about it because I think I'm so proud of him. Okay, Doki. You knobhead. She is quoted as saying, He has the gift of gab. He can make any woman believe him. He had more women than Carter had liver pills. In May of 1981, Nina had all of her boys living with her, including Tommy, at her home in Arkansas. She was getting no financial help since Joe Lovitz had died, and a marriage to the guy from Michigan was over. So she was working two jobs and was tired all the time. One morning, while Nina was in the shower getting ready for work, she heard the creak of the bathroom door open. A naked Tommy pulls the curtain back and climbs into the shower with his mother. He was 17 years old. Nina starts screaming at her son, kicking him in his shins, punching him in the shoulders with her fists. At that moment, she wanted to kill her son and have him out of her life for good. Tommy jumped out of the shower, put on his clothes, and fled the house. Tommy was soon admitted as an outpatient to the community mental health clinic in Jonesboro, Arkansas, for the attempted sexual assault of his mother. During one of the sessions with a counselor, the doctor asked Tommy why he attacked his mother. Tommy's tortured eyes glanced briefly at the counselor, then down at the floor. He says, I don't know who I am. I don't know why I did it. I feel like a fool for trying to attack mom. I don't understand why I did it. I don't understand anything anymore. The doctor asked him if he was angry at his mom and now I'm not surprised at this reaction. Tommy's eyes flared with anger as he relives the heat of the moment. "'Yes,' he yells. "'The doctor asks him why. "'What what did your mother do? "'She tries to run my life. "'I'm going to run my own life the way I want, "'and I don't care who I have to hurt to do it.'" The clinician observed his facial expressions, the tone of his voice, and his general body movements, and knew, without a doubt, that Tommy was an angry, volatile young man. With further testing, a more complete picture of Tommy Sells was revealed. This is according to my source. Quote, He felt unwanted and unloved. He thought he was the cause of all the problems in the home. He was sad, in pain, and unhappy about his current situation. He wanted to strike out and hurt someone else to relieve his own feelings of pain. Unquote. He was diagnosed as someone suffering from a conduct disorder under socialization and aggression. And I didn't even realize that that was a conduct disorder. Under-socialization? Interesting, though. (laughs) It was recommended that he attend regular therapy sessions to explore his feelings and his anger and find alternative methods of venting his emotions that would be in a safe, non-threatening environment and in a non-damaging manner. I cannot speak. Tommy attended five sessions, but on June 18th, he called and canceled his sixth appointment and he never again returned to the clinic. In 1982, after failing to get the help that he so desperately needed from the mental health clinic, Sells began drinking even more, eventually leading to his first arrest for public intoxication after a disturbance at an apartment complex. As we know from so many crimes that we listen to and so many serial killers that we hear about, alcohol plays such a huge role In 1992 also, Sells fathers a son while living in Arkansas with his then girlfriend, Cindy Hannah. The relationship with Cindy was doomed though, and didn't last, mostly due to the fact that Cindy's father didn't approve of Tommy, which was probably due to the fact that Tommy had robbed the church that the Hannah family had attended. Yeah, good job, Knobhead. Sells later confessed to two murders in this area, one has been verified, but according to Diane Fanning, with a slightly different outcome. Here is that story. On an unspecified date in 1982 in Little Rock, Arkansas, 18-year-old Tommy was creeping up to a home in the wooded area of the Pulaski-Saline County line, and he intentions, he had intentions of stealing just whatever he needed, whatever he wanted. He broke in and was caught in the act by homeowner Hal Akins, panicking, Sells took off running with Hal following. Tommy looked over his shoulder, turned, and without warning, shot the man chasing him. He dropped to the ground, or Hal dropped to the ground, held his breath, and pretended to be dead. Assuming the man was dead, Tommy fled the scene. But Tommy was wrong. Hal Aiken survived. In another one of Sells' confessed alleged crimes involved an accomplice. After Sells was arrested for the Harris murder, In March, which is his very last murder that I told you about, he led the detectives to a lake in Pulaski County. The story goes like this. Tommy and his unnamed accomplice kidnapped a young woman from a fast food restaurant just seven miles southwest of Little Rock. They took her down a dirt road to a bluff overlooking a 100-foot deep lake. The lake was actually a water-filled rock quarry and was named Blue holes. Allegedly, the two men brutally raped her, and when they were through, they picked her up by her arms and legs and swung her and let her go, flinging her body over the cliff, plunging her into the water below. Apparently, the sheriff's office in Pulaski County did not want to waste the expense of divers until they could really confirm his story. And I did some just Google searching and I couldn't find anybody, or that there was ever a search for a woman, or that a body was ever found in the Blue Holes Lake. Sells lived in one area in most of 1983, and that was in Breckenridge Hills, just outside St. Louis, Missouri. Police were able to confirm that he was in the area because he had received three traffic violations in the months of June, July, and December of that same year. Thomas and Colleen Gill and their two children were residents of the West End neighborhood of St. Louis in 1983. They were co owner they were owners together, how sweet, husband and wife, of a salon called Colette and Thomas On Hair Limited in, in De Perez. They had a large home at 23 Washington Terrace that they had just purchased in January of 1983. On July 31st, a man matching cell's description was seen fleeing the Gill home as Thomas Gill was pulling into his driveway. Once inside, Thomas Gill found the bloody and bludgeoned bodies of his wife, Colette, and his four-year-old daughter, Tiffany. Thomas raced up the stairs to go into his one-year-old son, Sean's bedroom. When he opened the door, the young boy was sound asleep, completely unaware of the massacre downstairs. Apparently, the neighborhood had been plagued by burglaries, but. Colette's very large and very expensive diamond ring was still on her hand. Thomas was, of course, their very first suspect. Ironically, there was a $600,000 life insurance policy taken out on her life just three weeks prior to her death. So I could see why Gil would um, be, become a suspect immediately, but there was never any proof which, of course, and so Gil was never arrested, and I'm thankful for that, especially since he was innocent. But I can can appreciate the suspicions. My mouth is broken, apparently. (laughs) But thanks for listening anyway. Sells was arrested in the May... Oh, my goodness. Sells was arrested in May of 84 in Benton, Missouri, by the Scott County Sheriff's Office. He was charged with the theft of a Ford Mustang, and then he was released in custody to Dunklin County. He pled guilty to the felony in front of a judge that happened to be the father of a childhood friend and was sentenced to only two years in the state pen. During this recent stint in prison is when Sells' daughter was born to Nicole Snow. Sells was moved to the Missouri State Penitentiary on November 18th in 1984. At the time, it was dubbed The Walls. Inmates called it something much different, something scarier. They named it God's bloodiest 40 acres on earth. So this is definitely not a place I would ever want to be. Minor infractions bounced him from place to place. He was then sent to the correctional centers of Alcoa, to Boonville, then back again to Algoa. Oh, I think I said Alcoa. Algoa. (laughs) Algoa. From Algoa. He was paroled on February 18, 1985. In July, just five months after being released from prison, Tommy Sells thought that it would be a good idea to steal another car. This knobhead just doesn't learn. He has been in jail so many times for stealing cars, and they just keep releasing him. Of course, how long can you stay in prison for stealing a car? Apparently not very long. He drove the car to Rolla, Missouri, where he dumped it at a donut shop. On the 19th, he checked himself into the New Horizons Rehabilitation Center in Vichy, Missouri. Three days later, his mother, Nina, called police and gave them her son's location. An officer from Clayton, Missouri, they did a phone interview with Sells regarding the car theft. The next phone call came from Sells' probation officer. He completely panicked that he was going to be arrested for violating his paroles. So Sells flees the rehabilitation center just days after a woman and her five-year-old son would be dead because Tommy Sells got angry. Here's a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show. In the absolutely gorgeous area of the Ozarks, with its deep valleys and puffy, pillow-like mountains and winding rivers that were teeming with bass, lies the county seat of Forsyth County. Nestled in the mouth of Swan Creek, the town looks unchanged since the 1950s. There is a little cafe with oilskin, red and white tablecloths, and a worn linoleum floor. This peaceful and beautiful place will never be the same when the carnival comes to town. Trigger warning, there will be a death of a child. On Friday, July 26th, 1985, cute little Rory Willie, as he liked to be called, Court, was beside himself with excitement as he was turning five years old in just eight days. He had an adorable little bowl haircut and a smile that was so big it took up literally half of his face. His mama, her name was Ina Court. She was a pretty petite young woman with brown hair and dark eyes. But having a birthday was not the only reason Willie, as he was nicknamed, had to jump up and down. He was stoked because he was going to the carnival at the Taney County Fairgrounds. He held his mama's hand as he saw the bright lights and heard the awesome sounds that one hears at a carnival. Laughter from people of all ages and the hum of machinery. He was so excited and the smells, the smells of popcorn and cotton candy Grilling hot dogs, it was just all so exciting. He was, after all, going to be five years old, and he was dreaming of becoming a big kid and winning his mama a stuffed teddy bear from one of the many games that he pictured himself playing. Ina, she was a single parent. She worked hard to provide for her and her son. Perhaps she was lonely, excited about the flirtations that were offered to her by a stranger. We'll never know, because her life will come to a violent end in just a few short hours. The court family home was a split level on Willow Lane, and according to Tommy, it was a normal pleasant visit up to that point when he excused himself to use the bathroom. When he walks back to the living room, Ina, who was already dressed in a pink negligee, was bent over his knapsack. I think she was probably just curious to know a little bit more about this stranger that was in her house. But for whatever the reason, Tommy immediately thought that it had to be to steal his stash of cocaine. He flew into a rage, furious that anyone would even think that they could steal from him and get away with it. Tommy grabs Willie's baseball bat that was leaning against the wall without slowing his step. It happened to be a birthday present. Ina looks up when Tommy lifts the bat and slams it down hard on her head in one furious blow. She's screaming and begging for her life, as he beats her over and over and over again upon the head, her arms and her bowed back. The blows are coming hard and fast, and she's rendered powerless because her skull is fractured. Then her terror is multiplied by a thousand when she sees little Willie standing in the doorway. Sells left her for only a few seconds, then returns with a kitchen knife and slashes her throat. As she was trying to get up to protect her son, her body falls to the floor, and Ina is gone. Sells also noticed Willie and grabbed him by his tiny four-year-old little arm. He beat him over the head repeatedly, then sliced his throat like he did his mother's and drops his body on the floor beside the sofa. It doesn't matter that he just killed a four-year-old child. He thinks to himself, like his father said, Allegedly, he's referring to Joe Levins, quote, a witness should never be left alive, unquote. Without leaving a trace, Tommy Lynn Sells walks out into the darkness. Being a carnival worker, their absences never raises a concern. Ina and her son Willie's cold bodies would be discovered three days later by her parents. Ina's eight-year-old daughter, which was Willie's sister, thankfully was spared the brutality by this stranger, because she had spent part of her summer vacation visiting her father. On the day that Willie should be celebrating his fifth birthday, he would be buried in the ground beside his mother at Snap Cemetery in Taney County. This once quaint, peaceful little town was stained with a double homicide, with no motive, no suspect, and no leads. On September fourth, 1985, drunk and drugged, He was driving down the road in Missouri with two underage girls when he lost control and rolled the car three times. End over end, all three occupants of the vehicle were able to walk away with minor injuries, but Sells was arrested for driving while intoxicated. That's good. And also got charges related to having minors in the car, minor girls. 30 days later, though, the court drops the charges relating to the girls for time served. On October 15th, his parole revoked. He was returned to the Missouri State Penitentiary, where he spent the next two weeks until he was sent to the Boonville Correctional Center. On May 16th, 1986, he was released with his sentence, served in full. Now, at this point in the story, is where the Harris family comes back into the picture. It's 1990. Terry Harris met his cute little neighbor, Crystal, who had just moved in and had three young children from a previous and, I might add, an abusive husband, Justin, who was blind and born when Crystal was only 17. Ten months later, Kayleen came into the world, followed by Lori, just 16 months later. Terry and Crystal hit it off, and soon their friendship became a little more, which what some would say romantic. Though she was gun-shy from her first marriage, Crystal invited Terry and his first-grade son, Sean, to move in with her and her brood of energetic rugrats. For the next five years, this blended family became close, super close, and tight as a normal family, loving family would. Yet marriage was never discussed. That is, until one day when Kayleen, or Katie, as she is called, came home from kindergarten. At school, she had noticed that she was different from the others in her class because everyone else had a mommy and a daddy. She had a mommy and a Terry. So one night she crawls up onto Terry's lap and asked him if he would be her daddy. Aw, bless her little heart. Terry snuggled the little girl with an emotional hug and told her yes. Crystal was caught off guard because they had never discussed marriage. Tommy Lynn Sells, apparently, also had a romantic relationship with a woman, and her name was Sandy, since he was released from prison. He and Sandy were married, but she has since died from breast cancer. But at the time, one night, about five minutes from downtown St. Louis, Sells is repairing the vehicle of a stranded motorist. Without provocation, supposedly, the man kicked him. Yeah, right. Sells pulled out his gun and shot the man, then left him for dead. Before Sells could leave the St. Louis area, he was arrested for stealing a light bar from one of the tow trucks unaware of the murder he had just committed the charges were dropped and Sells continued on his way crisscrossing the country Sells continued south until he reached Arkansas Pass, Texas this was just a little cute fishing town that was separated from the Gulf of Mexico by an outlying Mustang Island that just sounds cool Mustang Island he got a job with a company and that company was called Gulf Team Shrimp one day when the shipping boat was out at sea, Sells overdosed on heroin. He turned blue and passed out before he could push all of the heroin into his vein. He was discovered passed out with a needle still in his arm. James the rigman found him and since they were two days from shore, it was questionable whether or not Sells would survive. And too bad he did. Sorry, <laughs> no I'm not. When the Coast Guard picked him up, he was still alive but that was the last time he would go out to sea. Instead, he hopped on trains and wandered around the nation, going wherever the trains could take him. And, of course, there were violent encounters along his way. We have no confirmation or evidence to prove it, but he may have killed 19-year-old Michelle Xavier and her 20-year-old friend Jennifer Dewey in Fremont, California, in 1986. Their bodies were discovered off Mill Creek Road. One was shot in the head, and the other's throat was sliced wide open. The M.O. does sound like Sells. In late April 1987, once again, Sells hopped a freight train that took him to New York near Niagara Falls. And coincidentally, in Lockport, New York, a little town near Niagara Falls, Susan Kors was in a local bar fighting with her boyfriend. She leaves the bar after their explosive argument in front of everybody and headed in a direction that would not have taken her home. She would never be seen again and was listed as a missing person. There was an investigation into her disappearance. Canals and waterways were searched, but they did not find her body. That is not until more than seven years later, when a worker from a water plant was set up a hill to clear off debris from the Niagara Escarpment. And if you're wondering like I was, (laughs) what is an escarpment? It's, for example, where a 60 foot cliff might meet a sandy beach. So it's basically um, different levels of land that meet one another. Usually there's a steep steep amount of space between them. I am not Wikipedia. (laughs) There were loads of this type of terrain in the center of Lockport because near the escarpment is a canal that has a series of locks, which gave the town its name, Lockport. A worker from the plant saw what he thought initially was just a piece of trash until he picked it up and discovered that it was a human skull. Susan Kors' body had finally been found. It was 800 feet from the canal near a railroad trestle. She had been buried in a shallow grave and covered with debris. On May 3rd, 1987, two days after Susan's disappearance and two states away, Tommy Lynn Sells woke up with blood all over his clothes. In 1987, Sells landed in Humboldt County, Nevada, where he worked for a roofing company. Apparently, his expenses were more than his income, so which is not a good thing. So on October 28th, he wrote a bad check, and on the 30th, he stole a bank bag and a handgun from his employer's truck. And used a guy whose name is Raymond Lavoye. They used he used his credit card to rent a hotel room for a woman. At the same time, Stephanie Stroh, a 20-year-old Oregon college student, was returning from a ten-month trip to Europe and Asia. When Stephanie's flight lands in New York, she's going to fulfill her lifelong dream of hitchhiking across the United States, and she's gonna do it with a friend. Man, I respect that. This is a girl who knows what she wants and isn't afraid to make her dreams happen. Good for her. But it's bad for her what happens because she and her friend hitchhike together as far as Salt Lake City, Utah, and that's where they part ways. Susan would call home nearly every day and fill her mother in on her travels, the the sights that she's seen, and then when she'll be home. Her mother wasn't worried because Stephanie never told her That she was hitchhiking. On October 15th, at a four-way truck stop in Wells, Nevada, Stephanie Stroll went to the payphone to call her parents collect. After telling them where she was, she told them that she would be home in just a couple of days. The next day, Stephanie found herself in Winnemucca, Nevada, with no rooms available at any of the motels. She stopped in at Motel 6, where they leave the light on. Isn't that what their commercial says? (laughs) Anyway, Stephanie stops in. No, there's no, no room in the inn. And she decides to continue her way down to Reno, Nevada on Route 80. In a later interview, Tommy Lynn Sells tells the Texas Rangers that the closer he got to a young woman standing on the side of the road, the better and better she looked. She was five foot 5 large-breasted, with sun-bleached dark brown hair. She was dressed in hippie-style clothing and carrying an orange sleeping bag an orange sleeping bag roll, mind you, and a gray backpack. She stuck out her thumb, and he could not resist her. He came to a stop, and Stephanie ran over to the pickup truck and asked him where he was headed. He said, well, where do you want to go? I'm sure not in that voice. She said, Reno. He said, hop in. I'm heading that way. Near Lovelock, Sells turns off the highway with an invitation of dropping some acid. Since Stephanie had already taken major risks while hiking across the country, drug experimentation in the desert with a stranger just no longer seemed extreme. Sells strangles the life out of Stephanie Stroh as she's telling him about her trip to Paris. In the back of a stolen truck that Sells was driving, there was, conveniently, a wash tub and a bag of quick-mix concrete. Sells mixes up the bag of concrete in the tub, Places Stephanie's feet into it, and leaves her hanging off the tailgate of the pickup overnight, while the concrete hardens around her feet. I hate this visual. My my husband and I are always uh, working on our home. We've worked on homes since we were married, so thirty-three years of, thirty-two years at least of working on homes. So it requires us very often to mix up concrete for just different projects that we have going on. But I can't get the vision out of my. F- out of my head because this adventurous college student is hanging over the tailgate of a pickup while her feet hardening concrete. Ugh. The next morning, Cell says that he dragged her weighted body along with all of her belongings over to a 30-foot-wide hot spring. The spring was not one of the tame bodies of water that people go to to soak in comfortably Anyone that would attempt to stick their toes in this spring would deeply regret it. Sells drops Stephanie's body in, feet first, and watches her sink into the bubbling water. Then he jumps in his truck and drives out of the desert. Three days later, when their daughter had not arrived home and had not called, Stephanie's mother and stepfather called the Winnemucca Police Department and filed a missing persons report. Authorities discovered that Stephanie was hitchhiking, and because they assumed she had been abducted across state lines, the FBI was called in by mid-November. Marvin Stroke was Stephanie's father. He was on the scene with nine of his friends and family members. They drove straight from the airport to the Chrysler dealership that was there. Marvin purchased eight Jeeps, just outright, and they each jumped into one to find his daughter. Winnemucca in Humboldt County was a Focus as well as Reno down Route 80. Posters were plastered all over the area and questions were asked if anybody and everybody, if they had seen her. Without success, they returned to the dealership and sold back the Jeeps and flew back to the West Coast. Stephanie's mother, Joni Settlemeyer, made television appearances pleading for any information that would lead to the whereabouts of her daughter. Police learned of Stephanie's presence in Winnemucca. And attention was turned to Humboldt County, which was a very desolate part of Nevada. You could drive for miles and not see even one person walking, riding a bike, sightseeing, or anything. It's easy to lose a body in this area. San Francisco was Stroh's hometown. They offered a $10,000 reward for information that would lead to Stephanie or to a person responsible for her disappearance. The family was desperate, and so they decided to seek help from a psychic. Here's what the psychic said, that they could find Stephanie's body in the bottom of a well or a mine near an Eastern Nevada town with four syllables and its name. Both Winnemucca and Battle Mountain fit that description. There would be a white building, a ravine and a strip mining nearby. And finally, the psychic said, I see her feet in concrete. Wow. Okay, I think, I think that is a legitimate psychic. They searched the area and an old well. They flew an airplane that was searching over and around the area. But Stephanie's body has never been found. There were two eyewitnesses that came forward saying that they saw a girl that fit her description scuffling with a trucker on the side of the road. This was never confirmed, and since their stories did not match, because one witness said that the driver was a woman, and the other witness said that the driver was a man. Some people believe Sell's story about what he did to Stro. Others do not, but we don't know. On November 3rd, Tommy Sell's heads out of town, addicted to the high of taking a human life. He searches for more victims. In a few days, in just a few short days, he made it to Illinois. There, he would commit the most gruesome murder of his life. And that ends part one, The Cross-Country Killer. Thanks for listening. And don't worry, Gail will be back with her funny little self and her true crime shorts. Bye-bye. Don't forget to subscribe and share.
1: Thank you.